Welcome to BioChat, a podcast by Apple Technology. My name is Kinlan, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Dr. Timothy Fessenden, scientific editor at the Journal of Cell Biology. Thank you for hanging out with me, Tim. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. It's a beautiful day here where I am. Yeah, you said you were in Vermont. Today, at least. It's a beautiful summer day here. Where are you normally in the world when you're not in Vermont? When I'm not at a conference like I am now, I'm in New York City. I live in Queens and the office, because we are associated with Rockefeller University, the office for the journal is just a few blocks away from that in Manhattan. One of the things that we can talk about is how you got to where you're you're at. So first of all, let's start with why you love science. What possessed you to pursue the PhD and do what it is you do now? That's a big question, but a good one. I am one of those folks who was interested in science from a pretty young age, so it felt pretty natural, I guess, for me to focus on it when I was in college. No matter what, I think there was going to be some amount of science in my life, um, whatever career path and education path I took. But what led me to kind of academic science and bench research in grad school and beyond was actually in undergrad. Um, I was majoring in biology, but I also had another major, sort of a self-designed major in the humanities, broadly speaking, but sort of like politics and history. And I really was in both of those worlds. I was really, truly like split myself as a student um, between those two majors and loved both of them. But uh, towards the end, I was actually very interested in merging them in a certain way and trying to pursue uh, philosophy of science, which is kind of a branch of philosophy and just sort of humanistic study of the sciences. And with that interest, I was actually talking to a fairly well-known philosopher, and she was kind enough to, you know, make herself available to little undergrads like me who were really curious about her work and what she'd done. I was just, you know, full of ideas and excitement about this whole world and talking and talking and talking. And she was just like, wait a minute. She was just like, you're skipping steps. She was just like, if you want to do what you say you want to do, you actually have to get a PhD in biology. So it was really, uh, it was honestly a philosopher who was the first person in my um, undergrad, you know, education who suggested to me the idea that what I was really interested in, I would be able to understand and pursue much better after grad school in biology. And um, not to discount my fantastic biology instructors, um, they were definitely there and definitely supportive. But it was really that conversation that changed my mind. From there, after that conversation, I eventually found my way um, into a research lab at UCSF and um, was a technician for a couple of years. And that was my introduction to bench research. That's how I got really on the path. Once I was in bench research at UCSF, I just loved it so much. I wanted to do much, much more of it. And um, I applied to grad schools from there. And so 
that's how I wound up at U Chicago. So, you know, I, I can say now at this point, many, many years later, I am still deeply committed humanist, I would say. Um, I think that non-quantitative studies, broadly speaking, are still integral and essential and woven into the fabric of the scientific research enterprise. And as an editor, actually, I, I do get to merge those worlds which is pretty satisfying looking back on it. Um, but in, in the interim, yeah, I did a PhD at UChicago and then a postdoc at MIT. Awesome. So I know that we were neighbors for at least a little bit. I was a few years ahead of you. And, you know, we hung out together because we go to the same seminars, conferences and hung out at grad socials. But you were actually in my neighboring lab because I was in Richard Jones's lab. We did high throughput quantitative analysis of protein networks. And you were in Margaret Gardell's lab. And she was just a very bubbly, lovely, happy lady who I just remember made a lot of beautiful pictures like foloid and staining of actin cytoskeleton networks, for example. Lots and lots of beautiful immunofluorescent pictures. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your research with uh, UChicago as well, and then what led you into the postdoc path that you had. Margaret was a fantastic mentor for me, I will say, at UChicago, and her lab was a really, really wonderful environment to train in as a PhD student. The reason I became interested in her lab was I knew faculty from UCSF and that faculty was giving a seminar at, at Chicago and I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like, I know this fantastic scientist's work, like who on earth would be hosting them at UChicago? And lo and behold, it was Margaret. And so that really led me to her and led me away from what I thought I would be studying as a grad student and towards looking at the mechanical properties of cells and how all of the proteins that cells use to do all of their functions actually contribute to their physical properties and provide the cell with its ability to move and to change shape and and maintain a shape and adhere to its neighbors and stuff was really captivating for me and became a really wonderful um, introduction into interdisciplinary uh, approaches to understand biology from both the perspective of classical biology, cell biology, and genetics, but also from the perspective of a physicist um, who wants to understand what are the material properties of cells? What are the material properties of the interior of a cell? And how does that relate to its function? So that was generally what was fascinating for me as a grad student. And in particular, what I worked on in Margaret's lab was trying to figure out how a group of cells in a 3D environment, like, you know, with a 3D gel kind of around them, how would that group of cells kind of change its shape as a group? There was already a lot of work thinking about um, how does an individual cell do things like move from one point to another or change its shape or maintain its shape or whatever. There was less well understood how that would kind of scale up to a large group of cells that are all sticking together and yet needing to move. And so that was the project that I undertook, which was classic, I guess, PhD story. It was super difficult at first and just 
nothing worked for many, <laughs> many months and years until it all worked. And it was it kind of all came together pretty nicely towards the end into a more or less coherent story. So yeah, that was really, really gratifying for me. Also, because Margaret is who she is, I was really able to be kind of slotted into a fantastic network of really generous and really intelligent and creative scientists. It was also sort of like the milieu within U Chicago, but also outside of U Chicago via Margaret's network. That was really, really great to become acquainted with. And I would say I'm happily am still acquainted with a lot of those people now today, which is really nice. That's great. And you had mentioned the 3D uh, modeling of cells. You guys worked with uh, probably a lot of matrigel and eventually, what do we call them? They're, they're like spheroids, but y- you know how when you grow cells on a culture dish, they're in 2D, but there's a way to grow a 3D kind of spheroid or organoid. I think that that's the word. Did you guys actually get to do that a lot too? I was working mostly with a cell line because we needed things to be very as simple as possible, (laughs) as simple as possible and as reproducible as possible in order to make the measurements that I was interested in making. I think it would be a little bit of a misnomer to call it an organoid because oftentimes organoids are thought to be cells that came out of an organism or a patient or whatnot um, and, and maybe have some hallmarks of the tissue that they came from. The cell line that I was using was actually a dog kidney epithelial cell line, which sounds kind of uh, weird, but just for historical reasons, it's like an interesting science history kind of story. It's been used for a very, very, very long time as a model for your epithelium, which is to say you're kind of a single layer of cells that forms a barrier. So in this case, from the kidney and but uh, they're very good at recapitulating that kind of single cell layer barrier um, arrangement in 3D as well. So that's that's how I was using them. But they, people call them spheroids oftentimes or cysts, actually, which is kind of a, a little bit of a less uh, pleasing, I think, term to think about. <laughs> but just for historical reasons, I think that in that field, particularly, they would be called cysts. I, I, I tended to prefer spheroids when I was uh, actually using them. And then to that, I also added, um, with the help of a collaborator, a tumor explant. So just chunks of a mouse tumor um, placed into 3D kind of gave me uh, similar kind of results as as, uh, the canine kidney cells that I was using. And thanks to the network with Margaret, I imagine you were able to find your postdoc. Was your postdoc anywhere close to what you did as a graduate student? Just speaking from my my point of view, when I first got into graduate school, like my understanding was that your PhD was basically a testament to the ability for you to design and solve a scientific problem. But when I started interviewing for postdocs, they wanted me to bring, for example, my lab's technology into the new lab. They wanted me to continue on the path that I was on. And that that was kind of like not the way I wanted to. And that's part of the many reasons why I decided not to continue doing postdoc and go into teaching. But when you decided to do a postdoc, how did you decide which path to use 
what lab to go to. How was that process done? Because um, I was super late in the game. Like I was basically a few months from graduating, basically saying, oh my gosh, I don't have a job lined up. I should probably get on that. But I, I think that this kind of process requires a lot more runway than what I personally gave myself. Um, I think everyone has that impression, actually. I certainly have that impression because <laughs> I, I felt like it was an extremely rushed pro- decision-making process for myself. I think it's I think it's kind of inevitable, unless you're someone who is magically able to plan everything in your life five years in advance. <laughs> so I, I think there's just like a built-in tendency to have everything really rushed at the very end of a PhD. And that was certainly the case for me. I tried to be as thoughtful as I could about it, in a, and again, in a very short amount of time. I actually, I did, you know, I wrote about this because it was an interesting experience for me to get into the kind of lab that I was trying to get into. I wrote about it actually for the American Society for Cell Biology, their, their kind of a blog. But so because because I wrote about it, I guess I, I do have a, a succinct way of telling the story, which is that I, I realized that I really wanted to move into a cancer and cancer therapy related field. But I also wanted to retain my uh, interest in cell migration, how cells move. I still wanted to use microscopy as the primary method of investigation. So with those criteria, I landed on immunology because the anti-tumor immune response was really gaining traction. Not that it was a new field, but it was a newly appreciated field right around the time that I was graduating. And immune cells move around a ton. And indeed, the movement of immune cells um, is actually integral to their function for many, for many of the immune cell types. But the problem was, as you can imagine, Margaret was not an immunologist and did not know many immunologists. And so I was working at a sort of a deficit to try to get my foot in the door and get myself introduced to um, those kinds of labs and those kinds of scientists. Anytime you make a move like that, it's kind of like if you change fields, right? you're kind of at a disadvantage because you're an unknown quantity. And so the way that I found around that was actually through someone at UChicago who had been a postdoc and was about to start her own lab. So because I knew her personally, I actually knew her through her husband, who was another postdoc. And we realized that she wanted someone who had my background and I wanted someone who was going to be interested in immunology research, specifically anti-tumor immunology, which is what her whole lab was going to investigate. It was a really good match, at least on paper, because I was at this sort of disadvantage of not having a lot of access to a, a robust network of immunologists from which I could kind of like pick and choose. I decided to take the chance on a new lab, which I wasn't really aiming for, but in the balance, the postdoc with her really checked enough boxes that I was kind of willing to forego kind of the stability and the certainty of a more established lab. So that's how I ended up. Her lab was going to be at MIT. Um, That was a big draw for me as well, because I wanted to be at a really good institution. And she explicitly wanted someone who would do intravital microscopy in mice to observe immune cell behaviors in living mice and tumors. And I was ready to jump into that. Yeah, that's how I landed at MIT for four years. Sounds really cool. 
And when you speak speak to that, it, it just makes me think that, you know, like you said, a lot of us are in the same boat where suddenly the committee tells you, oh, you're about to graduate in like less than a year. So now we got to get our, our ducks in a row and figure out the next step. For me, you know, I had the family, so I had to make sure that, well, at some point income's going to stop. So I got to figure out how to get an income. And that that's part of the calculus. And that was part of the impetus for me to become a teacher, because that was something that I enjoyed doing. And I personally realized that like a lot of my friends who were PhDs, they don't want to stay in the lab forever. And you ended up not staying in the lab forever either. At what point did you decide, I'm not going to do lab work anymore, I'm going to work for a journal? I actually did not decide that. My postdoc, as I mentioned, was with a brand new lab, which meant that this person was sort of untested and sort of learning how to be a mentor. And the reason I left the lab was not my choice. Um, It was her decision not to renew my contract. After one year in her lab, I got a fellowship, and that fellowship was for three years. And midway through the third year of the fellowship, she informed me that she wouldn't be um, giving me a new contract at the end of the fellowship. You point out that a lot of people wanna kind of stop doing bench work. And although I won't say that I was looking forward to doing years more of (laughs) years and years more bench work, I wasn't ready to leave. You know, for myself, I would have preferred to see through the rest of the project, which at that point was really in this kind of like halfway kind of stage. So it's not that I was being torn away from the bench, kicking and screaming. It was just more that um, my postdoc tenure, I felt like, you know, was really not done. And um, I, I, I really wanted to have a paper. You know, I wanted to go apply to fac- faculty positions. You know, I was really aiming myself in that direction. And she had her reasons. Like, I disagreed with them, but she did have her reasons. And I would say we did not work effectively together in the way in, in a way that is clear in retrospect. But at the time was difficult to to really see with a lot with the clarity that I would have needed. I was kind of trying to tough it out and make it work, even though, to put it succinctly, our intellectual interests were pretty divergent, it turned out. But but honestly, neither of us knew that going in. So again, I took a risk and I knew it was a risk and it turned out the way it turned out. And it's hard for me to have regrets about that, but it is annoying. You know, it's it was a decision that was really out of my hands, unfortunately. So the only way I could have pursued bench research, you know, and sort of an academic career after that was by essentially starting a brand new postdoc, which, you know, after four years, I was really not going to do. So how did I get to become an editor? I was actually very interested in teaching like you. I was teaching an undergrad seminar at MIT in the biology department, which was super fun. I was interested in getting more teaching experience. And so I was a little bit more oriented in that direction, but I was having trouble identifying jobs that kind of met my needs in terms of salary and location. I kind of wasn't, I wanted to leave Boston. There was like, you know, it's like what you have, you have a 
a whole bunch of different kind of criteria that would be important to you for a new job. So this is a stage when I'm like freaking out and and just like trying to f- to figure out what on earth I'm going to do, you know, in the, the some few months remaining before my contract expired at MIT. And I'm just talking to everyone. I'm, I, I mean, I was fortunate to be surrounded by fantastic, fantastic colleagues at MIT. My former colleagues at U Chicago, I talked to, I got advice everywhere I possibly could. And there is a professor who I became friends with at the Whitehead Institute across the street from where I was working. And he was fantastically generous with his time. He, he just, he met with me, we got coffee and all he wanted to talk about was like me and my future and my career and my plans and my, and, and, you know, my priorities so generous. And he said, you know what, if I were you, you want to move to New York, I would imagine a a job that you would be really good at is being an editor at a journal like the Journal of Cell Biology, because they're in New York, because they're at Rockefeller. And before he said that to me, I had never considered an editor position at a journal. I had had just written it off completely. I had just been like, "Mm, I wouldn't be good at that. wouldn't be interesting to me. But in this moment where I was really casting about for anything that, you know, I was applying to everything I could, him saying that really stuck with me. And I was like, gosh, maybe this is coming from someone who was really supportive of me and who knew me pretty well. And I was like, wow, okay, I guess maybe he's right. But I kind of stayed there for a couple of days until the same week, the Journal of Cell Biology announced they were hiring for an editor. So it was just crazy, crazy, wonderful coincidence, right, that I had had that conversation that primed me, you know, to be kind of open to this idea. And then within just a few days, you know, I saw the announcement that they were hiring. So super great timing. I, you know, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plan That's that. Serendipity, man. <laughs> yeah. So um, I applied to that job and I applied, like I was saying, I was looking for other teaching jobs. But um, at the end of the day, the job that I was offered at the journal was, you know, much more in line in terms of meeting all of my needs than um, there were sort of just like halfway whispers about teaching positions um, otherwise. So yeah, so I went with it. I joined I joined the staff. I'm not the only editor. We're a staff of four. So yeah, so that's how I joined the team. And that was October of 2021. So it's not yet two years. I was talking to another friend on this podcast, and we were discussing trying to determine whether to stay in industry or go back to academia. And it seems like a lot of people are kind of cycling back and forth these days. So the the road isn't closed for you if you do want to go back to research. It's probably closed for me because I can't pipette very much anymore because it hurts my hands. And also, I kind of don't like it. But uh, at the same time, it it sounds like you are really enjoying yourself with JCB. So I guess I could ask, what do you think of the hiring process? Like what kind of experience did they ask for? Because I I was also looking at applying as an editor for a journal. And it's just like a lot of the different, even non-science jobs. They're just like you need five to eight years of experience and a massive publication record. I have like maybe four publications to my name. I imagine that your publication record is a lot better than mine, though. Well, not necessarily. 
I guess in terms of your question on the hiring process for editors, because it's a not quite a, a very common um, career path, which for good reason, there's just like not that many editors <laughs> in the world. It is variable, I would say, and it's also somewhat opaque from the outside. But at JCB, the journal, from what I could tell, what they really want is um, someone who has a broad research experience that's um, relevant to what the journal kind of what areas the journal really needs expertise in. And I had that just because I had kind of this cell biology background from uh, like cell motility, cytoskeleton background from um, my PhD. And then I had this other immunology work um, during my postdoc. And that breadth, I think, was important to the journal. I think especially the immunology piece was important. And, you know, that's something I had no, I I had, I didn't know that going in, right? I didn't know what their editorial staff makeup was like and what areas they needed, you know, support on. So that was, again, kind of just serendipity. In terms of reading and writing skills, that's really what you're doing all day as an editor. What I did not realize when this friend of mine was suggesting to me that being an editor might be a good career move was that I actually had a written a pretty large publicly accessible body of work that I could point to. And journals interested in hiring could pretty easily find my writing style and assess whether my written abilities were up to what they wanted. So I did not plan that and I didn't realize that, but it was sort of one of those funny things where you're kind of like optimizing yourself towards something that you don't even realize. I was sort of like backing my way into (laughs) a career in editing. I wrote blog posts as part of a volunteer position for the um, American Society for Cell Biology. I wrote sort of like previews of preprints, papers, you know, before publication that are appearing on BioArchive. I uh, was um, volunteering with a service run out of the Company of Biologists in the UK that's called Prelights, and I was active on that. And that's actually pretty close to editorial work because you're summarizing someone else's research um, manuscript. And so those kinds of things, as I think you know, I was involved in a podcast. Editing is not really the same as podcasting, but it is sort of, I guess you could say, you know, science communication in a certain way. And so those things, I think, helped me probably when I applied for the position it's it's hard to give this advice to other people just because I wasn't aware of it myself. <laughs> uh, I imagine that you probably have either in your network or in your circle of friends, others who not, are not necessarily in the same journal. But do you guys have a network uh, where you can access other editors within the same journal and other journals? You know, Rockefeller has an umbrella of journals, so you could probably work with them and then exchange ideas like what what is really hot right now in research what kinds of styles that you perhaps prefer when you're you're asking people to revise their figures or their words that's a really interesting question and here i have to go back to the observation that journals can be run very there's not one way to run a journal there is a huge diversity of the internal organization and prioritization within journals within scientific journals even within biology journals so i definitely cannot answer for any other journals other than the ones that i know which are the rockefeller university press journals 
even there, there's actually three journals. There's Journal of Cell Biology, Journal of Experimental Medicine, which you know, and then there's another very small journal called Journal of General Physiology. Even though we're all in the same family, right, they still work differently. There are different editorial practices, that, like things do not need to be the same. And so, yes, I share an office with all those other editors at those other journals. Um, and we do, you know, when there's like an, a Rockefeller University press wide event, obviously we're all there and we all know each other, but um, there is really no crossover. Um, I wouldn't be able to do their jobs, I guess I would say. And I don't think they'd be able to do our jobs. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, but it's kind of nice because the way a journal is run is, can, you know, is really an expression of its leadership and what what they want and how they think things work best. And so it's much more diverse from the editor side than you would know necessarily from the author side, which um, was, yeah, was was really surprising to me. So and, and in terms of other journals, like I, I have no idea. <laughs> like I I can't even begin. There's someone I know who's at the Journal of Cell Science because she and I have been at the same conferences and we've seen each other enough and she's super nice. And, you know, we chat, you know, but um, again, it, that journal is run completely differently from how my journal is run. So I think I think you have to be in the in the industry, I would put it that way, for a pretty long long time before you see these people often enough that you actually develop a rapport and relationships with them. But of course, in any industry, it's nice to do that. So I mean, I want to, you know, it really depends on just rubbing shoulders with um, other folks, other journals, which I just don't have a ton of opportunity to do. Like I, here I am at this conference now, I'm the only editor here. So there's no other editors who I can chit chat with about um, our different roles um, and our different organizations. You're probably right, because you can see that there's a different style. Even the formatting and the font choice is completely different between journals. Like, you know, uh, the cell press journals use Arial, and I think Nature uses, like, Times New Roman or something. I, I don't actually remember what font JCB uses. But when I was prepping manuscripts for our lab, because we had very large projects where basically everybody in the lab was involved, and we would prepare the manuscripts like you would be able to go to the journal's website and they would have a for authors section. Is the information on that for authors uh, section for JCB allowing the potential publications to adhere to the guidelines that you prefer? Or how, how often do you guys have to go back and forth and say you forgot to do this, this and that? And this is how you are able to fix it. Like, what's the communication process between, say, an editor and the primary author? It depends on what the nature of the mismatch or the issue is. But actually, I will tell you, my job is really not copy editing. There's no role for me to comment on things like the author language or write, like, if they have messed up their introduction section versus their results section versus their discussion section. My job is so purely focused on the science and the data and the evidence and the claims and how those claims are supported and the logic that I'm explicitly not looking at formatting issues. 
the only time that I do step into that, and again, this is this is definitely different across different journals. Sometimes editors, and this is this is a known thing at other journals too. Like sometimes the editor will say to the authors after peer review and everything and all the revisions, and it's being kind of going through the process for formal acceptance. Sometimes they'll be like, "Oh, your title." is too long or it doesn't make sense or it uses a word that no one knows what it means or um it uses a colon and we don't can't have colons in our titles things like that like that you wouldn't necessarily think of as an author but you know the journal that's part of the job of the journal so that is something i will do is fix your abstract your abstract doesn't make sense (laughs) like i will do that well, only at this late stage, though, and then all of that other formatting stuff is handled by staff more on the production side. So there's kind of a our process, peer review, everything, and we, you know, provisional acceptance. And then it really moves over to the production side. And they're the ones, like you said, font. I don't even know what font we use. I wouldn't know. I never touch that. Um, It's really on their end. And they're going through and they're saying, like, you have to spell out this abbreviation. The units on this are wrong. This is a typo in this sentence. All of that stuff um, I don't touch. And I think it's a good thing because I wouldn't be very good at it. (laughs) There's probably a separation of duties where one make sure that it looks aesthetically pleasing and it conforms to the format that is preferred by the journal. And your job is probably much more important, just making sure that the story makes sense, that they have done their proper experiments, so proper controls are there. I I, I think we kind of probably hung out together because I I think I actually might have been the TA along with Ben for the class where we taught folks how to write a grant. So now you have a really solid background on how to generate the proper data, to design an experiment, to make sure you have the proper controls, to make sure you don't break the bank (laughs) in doing the research. But by the time they get to you, they've already spent the money, so we don't need to worry about that. You just need to worry about the fact that uh, what they claim in their figures actually matches with what they're writing. And at that point, you just are looking for the logical process. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a surprise to me, too, when I first joined. I was a little bit disappointed that I couldn't tell the authors that their writing was terrible. I Not that I would say it like that. <laughs> but, you know, um, I care about writing. I care deeply about writing. And when a manuscript is poorly written, it's a little bit painful that it's not my role to comment on that. But that is actually in the interest of the journal's integrity and it's the interest of the authors because it means that the assessment at the most important stage, right, is assessment that is as pure as possible in the realm of logic and reason and evidence and not style. My job is explicitly not to comment on style. And that's actually a good thing. You know, that's how journals should work. So I'm perfectly fine with it now. And I understand it much better now, now that I'm in the role. Can you tell me about a particular publication that was published in JCB under your watch that you really enjoyed? And then tell me about parameters that might cause a publication to get rejected for further review or might just get permanently rejected. So there is a paper that I really liked uh, that came out in January of this year that I handled. And the title is Developmental Pruning of Sensory Neurites by Mechanical Tearing in Drosophila. 
the entire story is honestly in that title. What they were investigating, which is we we do see a lot of Drosophila work at uh, JCB, but very little Drosophila work actually looks at metamorphosis during the pupil stage. But during metamorphosis, all of these sensory neurons have made all of these like highly branched neurites, but they actually make too much. And so there, there's this process that happens in mammals too called um, pruning, where like the extra uh, dendrites kind of get cut back and they um, they get severed. And then you have kind of like the proper sensory inputs for the organism. So that was known that that happened in Drosophila during metamorphosis. Another thing that happens during more, uh, metamorphosis, especially at the very end, right, you have this newly made fly has to get out of its little case at the end of metamorphosis. And so it, it does that by the in, induction of these um, sort of like shivering muscle contractions that happen really, really fast and help to kind of like shake it out. And what these authors in Germany found was that these things are actually linked. So this muscle, these like really strong muscle contractions that are actually very tightly developmentally controlled to be timed to the end of metamorphosis actually serve to they they displace and they shear the tissue so much that it actually helps the process of neurite pruning neurites that are kind of primed they're sort of like weakened and they're ready to be pruned they actually won't be severed unless you have this mechanical strain that's placed on them due to these muscle contractions so this was super cool. They showed it that if you um, inhibited these muscle contractions, you wouldn't get pruning. They showed that they could kind of like make the pruning happen um, if they kind of induced their own um, new muscle contractions, whether in the organism or in vitro, um, just cells in a dish. They looked at the direction of the pruning in terms of the severing of the dendrite versus the direction of the shearing that was placed on that cell structure. So it's, as you can imagine, it's a very long, skinny extension, and it's a, it's a crosswise shear that will just kind of help it sever. This was a really nice story. The reviewers were really excited about it. It's, I mean, it's not like it sailed in and just we published it right away. Of course, it went through a review and we asked the authors to make some changes. But I really liked it because it brought together two pretty different phenomena that had not been linked before. And it also helped tell a story that related to mechanical forces that are triggered at the level of an entire organism or an entire tissue but that propagate down to an individual cell level and that actually serve an important role at the individual cell level, in this case for the sensory neurons. So turning to papers that are sort of problematic, or not problematic, I mean, you know, non-problematic papers can be rejected all the time, but um, reasons, reasons that a paper might not be um, accepted, there are many. <laughs> of course, there are many. I mean, at the journal, we do... Certainly reject many more manuscripts than we um, invite to review. And then of those that go to review, there's a certain fraction that we actually do not invite a revision following the review. We, we tell the authors it's better to just go somewhere else. And there's so many reasons for that. The kind of most easy, most common one is simply that there's not a detailed sort of story that will provide new insight into some cell behavior, some some um, cell process that is supported with um, enough rich details to really describe what's going on with that process. 
so that we understand it at a much richer level, but that will also interest a broad cell biology kind of audience because our audience is all of cell biology. So it's, it's really broad. We publish plant papers, we publish parasite papers, you know, we publish immunology papers and neuroscience papers. So it's really important that we can say this work will appeal. It doesn't have to appeal to literally everyone, right? But it has to appeal to a broad section, right, of cell biology. So it's strong papers will talk across subfields of cell biology, kind of like this one that I just mentioned, you can imagine. And papers that aren't able to do that are often, that's often a reason that we'll decline to review a paper or maybe after review we'll decline to invite a revision. That's the most common thing. It's not my job. I think I made this a little bit clear before, but sometimes if a claim is clearly not supported sufficiently by the data, that can be a reason to reject it. But really those kinds of calls are what we leave for the peer reviewers, right? The peer reviewer's job is to really scrutinize what are the claims, how strongly are those claims supported by the data provided. In my role, it's, it's a sanity check. If it's if it's just super obvious that they provide all, you know almost no or very very little support for a major claim that they're trying to make, that's another reason. You know, we'll just say, look, we can tell at this stage that this would not do well during peer review. So that's a very good reason for us to decline to send it out to review because it's it's a waste of the author's time. So those are the two broad categories. Sometimes, of course, we get things that are out of the scope. You know, we get clinical trials. We don't publish clinical trials. <laughs> so sometimes that happens too. Um, I think uh, some papers sometimes rely heavily on RNA sequencing, right? And if you can draw all kinds of beautiful UMAPs. You can do all sorts of gene ontology analyses or KEG analyses and pathway analyses and protein-protein interaction analyses from your wonderful, wonderful RNA sequencing data set. If that's all you're showing, you're really not investigating a cell biology process with the, like I said before, a rich detailed mechanism if what you're providing is essentially RNA sequencing and then analysis thereof. Um, so that, that's another reason. So studies that we would call um, descriptive, right, um, that really are missing essential kind of like functional deep mechanistic analysis that falls into the category again of like, we don't think this will really interest enough people because what you're essentially showing is an RNA seq data set. And that's going to be interesting to pretty small audience of people who are really interested in like whatever your sample was, right? But maybe not other others. There's a lot of examples of successes. So it's hard for me to kind of contrast this with like, don't do this and do do this because success can look like so many different things. Um, so it's hard for me to really provide the opposite. But I think in terms of when we decline papers, it's, it's broadly usually can be classed into the things that I mentioned just now. When you choose reviewers, do you guys have like an army in reserve? Uh, do you have to continue to vet this this reviewer pool and they have to like somehow continually prove themselves? Or how? what are the parameters for one to become a peer reviewer? 
This is actually a great question because I get asked a lot from postdocs and even grad students who have identified the value of serving as a peer reviewer and they want to know how do they get asked by Journal of Cell Biology to serve as a peer reviewer. And I don't have a very good answer for them because we are fortunate to have a very long history and a very wide and deep pool of reviewers, I guess I would say, who have reviewed for the journal before. I'm pretty sure any journal that's doing it right has records of this stuff, right? So it's very easy for me to look into um, a given person and see their profile, how many times they've reviewed. Like, you just see all this stuff. It's pretty normal. You know, it's like any journal will have that um, in terms of author information, right? So it's easy to access things like how many times people have reviewed for the journal. And then, of course, you just can look at all of their own publications, whether at our journal or another journal, right, and look at the quality of their publications and the topics. So there's not one way to pick reviewers, really. I don't think there's a magic secret. A benefit of the journal, as I said before, because it has a long history, is it really has a large pool of very dedicated reviewers who have or who are used to seeing papers come from our journal, who have a strong sense of the field that they're in, knows who is who, and knows what claims are what, and are, fortunately for us, happy to um, volunteer their time to review papers that will appear in the journal. It's A lot of reviewers take it very seriously, what papers come out in our journal. And we really are we really are grateful and we really benefit from that, from that dedication. So that's not something that you can create de novo. The answer that I give to grad students and postdocs is to is I would encourage people who are interested in serving as peer reviewers to talk to their PIs and make use of other services, such as I did when I was a postdoc using the service set up by the company of biologists to um, write previews of preprints. There's also preprint review services. You can actually do that. But yeah, in terms of how we find reviewers, we have a lot of we just have a very, fortunately, a very wide and deep community, I guess I would say, of reviewers who are committed to the journal, which is really great. Yeah, you touched on something that I never actually thought of because I always thought the peer reviewers from any journal, from the, quote, lowest tier to the highest tier, had to be at least an assistant professor uh, uh, level faculty members, basically somebody who has established themselves as sort of an expert in the field and not necessarily a graduate student or a postdoc. So it's kind of interesting that that is an avenue available to them to is there income involved? Because I imagine that a lot of them, like me, were starving graduate students and could use an extra like few hundred dollars or something. <laughs> no, there's absolutely no income involved. <laughs> but but at least they get clout, right? Because that's something that you can actually put on your resume and that actually uh, pays dividends down the line. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the reason and it makes sense. And I'm I think if I was a postdoc today, I would be asking editors the same question of like, hi, can I please serve as a reviewer? We send papers to experts and the vast majority of the time, the experts that we find are faculty. But it's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to, I mean, it's not only me making the decision in, in this case at, at the Journal of Cell Biology. We also make it in partnership with our academic editors who are themselves professors. Our job in assigning peer reviewers uh, is to gather 
expert views on a topic. And that's the top priority always. This stems from a meme that's probably been circulating for time immemorial. <laughs> but uh, there's always that mythical reviewer, too, that rejects everything. How do we help folks placate reviewer, two? What is the best possible way to accommodate as many of the reviewers' recommendations as possible, their critiques? And is there a point where you say a reviewer's critique is probably unreasonable and you can still publish? Great question. They're always difficult reviewers. It is, it absolutely happens that there are, you know, certain requests that are unreasonable and that an author should not have to fulfill. Um, that certainly happens. As an editor, because part of my role is interpreting and distilling the reviewer reports into a decision letter that we send to the authors. And again, I should emphasize here that this decision letter, along with every other decision that we make on a manuscript, is a shared decision between me, the um, scientific editor, and the academic editor, who is in our, a member of our editorial board and is a professor somewhere in the world. Again, we together come together and we make a we write a decision letter. And personally, my goal, not my goal, but like one thing that I find as important is to really explicitly state to the authors which reviewer comments we would not require in a revision. So like finding things that are very clearly not necessary. And, you know, some editors at some journals certainly don't can leave that up to the authors to kind of decide for themselves what the authors think is critical and what is out beyond the scope or not possible or whatever. But I, my view is it really never hurts to just take that uncertainty out of the author's hands and say, like, you don't need to do this. Points three and five from reviewer two, like, are not required. Those authors can still do those. You can... We won't, I won't mind, you know, if you still go ahead and provide those extra experiments or data. I just, my preference is to err on the side of providing more information to the authors as we're considering the manuscript and the reviewer comments. How to placate a re reviewer. First of all, it's important to recognize that some reviewers will never be placated. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but as an author, you just have to know that there are some cases where you were just will, they will never be happy. So it's important to recognize when, when that happens, if you can. If reviewers are asking for, you know, really tough things, but they're fair, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Sometimes a reviewer might ask for an experiment that's not possible for, for various reasons that no one can foresee except for the authors, right? The authors know that these cells won't do that or that gene won't knock down well or whatever, you know? And it's up to the authors to try to find a different way of resolving the, that, con that particular concern. And a, a lot of times what we will write in the decision letter is like, it's up to you how you do this, but this is these are the concerns that you need to resolve. How you do that is up to you, but those have to be addressed. I would hope it's beneficial to the authors to be given that flexibility and that leeway in terms of addressing the concerns, because it's not necessarily, it's usually not about like this one experiment has to have this one outcome. It's usually a, a conceptual or a logical issue. It's like, oh, you're missing a control here, right? It's things like that. There's just like issues that, that weaken the conclusions that need to be kind of strengthened. I would say... 
there's no reason to be mean in your words. <laughs> Use your words wisely. I've seen authors, I think what, what really surprises me, of course, we're used to hearing about reviewers who are mean, and that obviously happens, but um, I've seen authors respond really ag aggressively to, uh, to reviewer comments that were not inappropriate, uh, or were not out of bounds, or, or exceptionally onerous. So it's it's always surprising and disappointing, I guess, if authors come across as really prickly, you know, um, there's no really no need for that. It doesn't help anyone. That doesn't happen that often. Thank goodness. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, reviewer peer review is it's a delicate process. And if you think that science is all about being objective and it's just facts, facts, facts and data points and pure objectivity, you are very wrong in terms, at least in terms of peer review. It's humans communicating with humans, you know, it's so it's a very, like I was saying in, in about my own history, it's a very humanistic endeavor. Of course, it's problematic sometimes, but um, just as often, actually more often, honestly, authors are really pleased at the constructive improvement made uh, by their manuscript by peer review. The fact that it's such a human endeavor doesn't mean that it's bad, right? It doesn't mean that the science is bad or that the science is weak. It's just people helping people make better papers. That's how I see it. Yeah, just telling a better story so that you can further the science in whatever field it was. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, the humanistic approach because in terms of trying to acquire funding, it's usually based on how many publications you can churn out. In terms of which journals to publish in, usually people kind of gravitate towards the big name journals like the Cell Press Journals, Science, uh, all the Nature Journals, PNAS, etc., and I feel like that leaves a lot of the still solid and good science that will contribute to society in the dust because they were in like some an MDPI journal or EMBO or something, and they're not quite as high, but they're still important. So I was wondering uh, what your philosophy was on which journal did you publish in versus the integrity of that science, the, the impact of that science, even if they weren't able to get into a cell press, for example. Right. You mean like diversity of journals, especially impact factors, I guess, to put it bluntly or to put it one way. Versus science? It's a good question. I see all the time. I see really, really great stories, great investigations that for no, no fault of their own, right? It's not a fit for our journal. There's been a lot of movement towards open access. I don't know if uh, JCB and the other Rockefeller journals are behind paywalls or not, but I, I know that after I graduated, I was not able to get access to journal articles as much like my company will pay for it and you know sometimes i can get a friend who is all you know another postdoc or a faculty member to just email me a pdf but part of being in science is communication and i think you're a big proponent of that i think science should be accessible and it shouldn't be behind a paywall but at some point you know the journals have to pay their bills what do you think of open access versus paywall journals and quality thereof I don't really have a view on quality. Open access is definitely where things are going. I think you think 
honestly, any any journal and any journal editor needs would would have to know that that's where things are heading, whether they like it or not. And I think that's actually not a bad thing. I think there's good reasons that the um, publishing enterprise is moving in that direction. In terms of JCB, it's a hybrid journal, so authors can publish open access if they want to, or they can publish via the subscription access route, which is to say behind a paywall, right? If, unless you have a, unless your library subscribes. So there's just different article processing fees that the journal charges for those two different um, publication routes. But even those that are not open access initially become free after six months. So it's just really the six the six month window during which there they would not be accessible to people without a subscription, which I guess sounds like a long time, but also sounds like a short time. We do see, I mean, we like open access because those articles actually see higher usage. We we see that in our own statistics. Like they get those pages get visited more often, and they people download those PDFs more often. So it's it's a good thing for us, right? So the journal the journal is like encouraging that as well. The, another thing that the journal is doing, the, the press is not this is like now not my job at all, but um the press is doing is initiating into like a different kind of agreement with institutions that's no longer really a normal subscription, but rather it's called a read and publish agreement, which basically guarantees that um, anyone publishing from those from that institution will automatically publish open access. So it's growing. I think more and more institutions are kind of opting into that sort of slightly tweaked model for both how to support their own authors in publishing open access, but then retain access to those articles that might not be published open access and you know i haven't published anything in like 10 years now so it's like you're you're basically helping educate me and whoever listens to this about the landscape and it's very much appreciated i i hope we can do this again someday and i'm very glad you're doing well and doing your part to make sure that science is told the right way Thank you so much. This was really fun. I really appreciate it. I hope we can do it again, too. This has been a conversation with Tim Fessenden at the Journal of Cell Biology, and we hope you join us again the next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Kim Lund. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on appclone.com, where you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or any comments, or to inquire about AppClonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at appclonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.